So this morning we're going to have the third uh, session about resilience. Just to uh, recap, on the first session we looked at the idea of uh, resilience and I gave you a little definition which I'll read to you for those who weren't here. The capacity to remain flexible in our thoughts, feelings and behaviour when faced with a life disruption or extended periods of pressure so that we emerge stronger, wiser and more able. So we thought a lot about that life disruption, what that might be. It could be anything actually. But the status quo, the equilibrium of our life is disturbed by some event, some circumstance that comes to us and that we have to cope with it and we have to uh, get through that. We have to manage um, ourselves at that particular time. And resilience is what helps us to bounce back from that kind of difficulty, to stand firm when the pressure is on, to keep going to the very end as it were, to recover when we've been hurt and injured, to adapt to changing circumstances. That's what resilience is. And we thought about how we can learn resilience and I shared with people the nine characteristics of resilient people. And then yesterday we looked at the stories of Joseph and the story of David to bring out in particular two of those characteristics. The first one in the life of Joseph being that uh, people who uh, are resilient have a way of making sense of what happens to them. They can find meaning and purpose even in difficulty. And so we thought about uh, Joseph's life and how it teaches about the providence of God. You meant it for evil but God meant it for good and so much came out of that eventually. And uh, through David we saw that spiritual vitality is important, that uh, having that living relationship with God helps us in times of trouble and difficulty. We saw how David in a time of great trauma, when the village where uh, his family lived and the other families lived was burned and destroyed and the women and children and old people taken off as hostages. And it says there, but David strengthened himself in God. He found, found strength and grace for that particular trial. And we thought about how we may do that. Today we're going to look at how Jesus prepared his disciples for life without him. And uh, the passage that we're going to be reflecting on is the, uh, John 13 through to verse 16, what is sometimes called the upper room discourse because it takes place in the upper room. And it's perhaps the longest a uh, portion of scripture where we see Jesus interacting with his disciples. We're able to eavesdrop on that conversation. And what Jesus is doing is preparing them for when he will not be with them any longer. For going, he's going to the cross, but then he's returning to the Father. And he knows that that's going to be a, a, a time of grief and of loss for them. But also they're going to face the challenge of going into the world, a very hostile world, to continue the work that he has begun. How are they going to cope with that? So in a sense, the way that Jesus prepares his disciples is, if you like, a masterclass about resilience. And that's how I want to look at it and draw out to you some of the really important uh, things that Jesus is saying to the disciples and which he says to us. So the first thing I want to draw your attention to, and, and probably you'll be quite familiar with these passages of Scripture, but we'll, we'll look at them from this perspective of resilience, 
is this, to be part of a believing community. See, resilient people have a support network around them. They are not living alone. They live in community. And as believers, we may take that for granted, really. But many people in the world are extremely lonely. They don't have that community of friends or or brothers and sisters around them. They are extremely lonely. And they don't have that community. But Jesus provides that for us through what we call the church. Not always a perfect organization, sometimes as much a cause of pain as anything else. But when it's what it should be, it provides a source of great resilience for us. So um, what Jesus says about that community uh, are two things. First of all, in, in John 13, the community that he is seeking to bring into being, which we call the church, is a community that is based upon love. So John 13, verse 34, Jesus says this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you also must love one another. By all this men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. You see, when we practice that principle of loving one another, and the love that is being spoken here is 1 Corinthians 13 type of love, not just an emotional feeling about something, but about the practical demonstration of the love of God within me towards those who are around me, about considering others before considering my own needs, as it were. Uh, Paul writes about, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And in this community, we have to learn, with God's help, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to love one another. It's a difficult thing to do, because in this community, anybody can join. (laughs) It isn't a select group of people who are like me. It is actually sometimes people who come with hurts and brokenness and woundedness and all kinds of issues, and that's just the leadership. (laughs) It is. They ain't perfect. They have their insecurities and their issues like anybody else. And unless we are all, in a sense, living out of the love of God, the idea of the church is impractical, it's not workable. It can only work with the help of God's Spirit and with this commitment to love one another. But then when the world sees that, that is what is greatly attractive about the church, that here is a community of people who are accepting, who are welcoming, where we can feel at home. So the first aspect of that believing community is that it should be based on love. The second aspect is that it's built around servanthood. And in chapter 13 there, this time together in the upper room begins with Jesus doing the unthinkable, taking the towel and the basin and washing his disciples' feet, taking the role of the servant and doing the menial task that nobody else wanted to do. And some of them, like Peter, found that very difficult because we do sometimes find it difficult to be on the receiving end of care from other people. We like to be caregivers, not necessarily care receivers. But servanthood is meant to be at the heart of this new community. So John 13, verse 14, Jesus says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. In some ways that's a cultural practice. I have been in settings where we have done that very thing and it's very moving. But what it's really getting at there is that you should serve one another in love. 
I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. That's so often the way, isn't it? It's when you do something that you receive the blessing that goes with it. So here are these two ideas that this new community that he had been forming through the 12 disciples and then the 72 disciples, and by the time of the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, 120 of them gathered in the upper room. This new community being built around these two things, loving one another and serving one another. And on the first day I, I said, what a joy it is to be part of a community like that. And that's where you get much of your resilience from, because when you come into this community you feel loved and you feel accepted, you can receive strength, <coughs> sometimes you'll be the strong one and you can give something to others, another time you'll be the one receiving it. And there in that community we find healing, we find grace and we find strength to carry on. I hope you belong to that kind of a community. I hope that is something that is there as a resource to you. Because it's a wonderful gift from God. Maybe you know this song uh, by Richard Gillard. Brother, sister, let me serve you. Let me be as Christ to you. Pray that I may have the grace to let you be my servant too. That's mutual servanthood. Servanthood is actually not all that popular nowadays. I wrote a book about servanthood. It's called Servant Ministry. And of all the books that I've written, it's the one that le sells the least. <laughs> not because it's inferior to the others. It's not. It's just as good. But if, don't judge a book by its cover and don't judge a book by its title. I didn't realise that. I was a little bit naive. One of my friends... Actually, Simon Ponsonby, who was, was a speaker here, and I think this was when he told me, he's also right. He said, Tony, when I wrote the books about the Holy Spirit, they're sold like hotcakes. When I wrote about holiness, psh, nobody wanted to know. <laughs> I should have called my book Successful Ministry. Yeah. <laughs> that would have sold. But servant ministry, hmm, people think, I'm not sure I want to get into that. But this community is built around servanthood. Serving one another in love. And here's this lovely quote from a, a lady called Frauke Schaefer, who is involved in caring for missionaries. She said this, Human resilience depends on the ability to closely connect with at least a few other people. Openness and vulnerability lead to a deeper relationships which are life-giving. Resilient people are more interdependent than independent. They entrust themselves to others and accept help and support. Even if you can't find that in your church, you may be able to find a few other people with whom you can meet and whom you can develop what we sometimes call spiritual friendship. That is friendship which is for the purpose of helping us grow together in God, where we can talk about our faith, where we can talk about our struggles, where we can share our hurts and our disappointments and not be judged, but pray for one another, encourage uh, one another. 
I'm so grateful for people whom God has brought into my life who fill, fulfill that role for me. Sometimes for my wife and I, we meet with uh, three other couples and, and we have such good fellowship together, not in our church or outside of our church, but we share life together. I meet with a group of five other men every eight weeks for a quiet day together and we just share our lives and pray for one another. And that's where much of my resilience comes from. <laughs> Because there are those supportive relationships. And that's what Jesus is saying to these disciples. It's going to be tough. But you have one another. You have one another. Care for one another. Love one another. Encourage one another. Build one another up. All those one another verses in the New Testament. That's what it's about. Be part of a believing community. Ask God to give you such a supportive network. Actively seek it out. If you have friends who fulfill that need in your life, then appreciate them. Let them know how important they are to you. Nurture that friendship. Invest time in that friendship because it's vital to your resilience that you have that kind of friendship in place. Be part of a believing community. Secondly, Jesus encourages them to trust in God. We thought about that word trust yesterday when we looked at David and we said, you know, it's faith really uh, in a dark place, and perhaps it's one of the highest expressions of faith, to be able to trust God when you can't see what's happening, when you don't understand. When life is hard, you choose to trust. And uh, the days ahead of the disciples are going to be difficult. They'll be lonely, they'll be full of grief. They will be challenged in many ways. The writer I mentioned to you yesterday, Brennan Manning, uh, has written a book called Ruthless Trust. He calls it Ruthless Trust because he says the great enemy to trust is self-pity. I feel sorry for myself. So you have to be a bit ruthless with yourself. And you have to choose to trust even when you're hurting. But he says this, listen. Human uh, sorry, the faith that animates the Christian community is less a matter of believing in the existence of God than a practical trust in his loving care under whatever pressure. Can, I'll read that again to you so you can get what he's saying. The faith that animates the Christian community is less a matter of believing in the existence of God than a practical trust in his loving care under whatever pressure pressure. You see, you can believe in God, but not trust God. You can believe all the right things about God. Your theology can be very orthodox, but what you really believe is how you respond when you're under pressure. So you can be believe something in your head, an idea, a concept, a doctrine, but that will not necessarily help you if your gut level belief is that God is likely to abandon you, that God might punish you, that God might send difficulty into your life just because he's that kind of a God. That gut level understanding of God may be quite different to what you know about God in your mind. It's what we believe in our hearts at the end of the day that when we're in trouble... That's what keeps us. Let me share a few verses of what Jesus said. First of all, in, in chapter 13, verse 7, Jesus said to them, Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later 
you will understand. That's a very important truth. Chapter 13, verse 7. You do not realize now what I am doing. Often we do not realize in this present moment what God is doing. It's only afterwards, but afterwards, later, you will understand with hindsight. That's what we saw in the life of Joseph. It was later on he could make sense of it. Later on he could say, well, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It was later on. So take encouragement from that. Take heart. Because you may be in a situation now and you don't understand what's happening, but later on you will. Later on. When you've come through the other side. Chapter 14. Jesus says this, often read at funerals of course, uh, but it's speaking to us here about also about being resilient. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Sometimes it's translated believe in God, believe also in me, but I think the word trust is a better word because that difference between believing in God and trusting in God and he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Because, why? Because the heart naturally, for most of us, it drifts towards feeling troubled, feeling despaired, feeling hopeless, wanting to give up, wanting to quit. And Jesus says, get hold of your emotions in a sense. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And again, we saw that resilient people are able to acknowledge their emotions, they don't deny them, they express them, but they are not prisoners to their emotions, so they do not let their hearts be troubled. Your heart wants to go there, but you say, no, I'm going to trust in God instead. And you bring it back again. You bring your emotions under the control of the truth, not just letting your emotions go wherever they want to. So your mind and your heart are involved here. That's what happens with resilient people. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. We just have to trust. His promises for the future are sure. And then in chapter 14, verse 18, he reminds them that though it will be a difficult experience and they will feel bereft, he will come to them. John 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. I will come to you. He was going to come to them in his resurrection, but he was going to come more permanently through the gift of the Holy Spirit, which we'll come on to think about in a little while. But Jesus is not going to leave them bereft. He's not going to leave them as orphans. He will come to comfort them. He will come to be with them. So here are some encouragements for us to trust. I was thinking last night as uh, we, in, in the worship, we were singing a song that was one of those that affirms some of the great creedal affirmations. And many of our churches, we will say the creed maybe every Sunday, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and so on, and I believe in this and I believe in the other. And those are all very important statements. But I wonder how many of us, when we're in the thick of the battle, when trauma has hit us, do we actually think about, I believe in the virgin birth, you know. That's not really where it's at when it comes to trouble. I think we should have some creeds that say something like this. I believe that God is always with me and he will never leave me alone. 
That's very biblical. I believe that God's grace is sufficient for me in any and any circumstance. I believe that all things work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. I believe that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And just have a list of things that actually we declare sometimes in church. I think that would do us all good. Do you think so? I think that would do us all good. (laughs) What do you actually believe when it comes down to it? It's not creedal affirmations that keep you in trouble. It's what your heart believes. What your heart believes. What your heart is telling you. I believe he will not let me be tempted beyond what I can endure. I believe that God will supply all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I believe that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Are those the things that you believe? Those are the things that are the anchor points for your life. And sometimes what happens in trouble is it exposes what you do and you don't believe actually. You may think you believe it, but when actually you're under pressure, you see, I don't really believe that. I don't really believe it. That's why we have to be laying the word of God in our hearts. Letting it dwell in us richly. Meditating upon the word of God. So it's not just a truth in my head, it's anchored in my heart. And it determines my responses. The Holy Spirit can then bring it to my remembrance. It comes back to remind me. This is what you believe. This is what you believe. This is what I have promised to you. Trust is a basic thing that Jesus is speaking about. And then the third thing, and I'll pause after this third thing. Jesus encourages them to follow their master and to be ready for suffering. To be ready for suffering. In fact, he is telling them here that not only is he going away, but he will send them into the midst of this hostile world... And surprise, surprise, the world will not actually like them. It will be difficult. Suffering, inevitable, but overcomable. Jesus tells them the truth like it is. Uh, When I was coming, uh, travelling here on Sunday, I stopped at uh, motorway services for something to eat. And... uh, There was a a whole array of different shops offering things to eat and I was attracted by a lovely large poster of a Cornish pasty and a cup of coffee. I thought, that is just what I need. (laughs) And it said $4.99 or something like that. So I thought, well, in the context of a motorway services, that's okay. So I walked over to order my meal deal and uh, when I asked the lady at the counter, I said, I'd like a meal deal. And she said, would you like a drink with it? I I said, well, I I thought it's part of the deal. Oh, she said, you have to pay extra for the drink. (laughs) And I looked at the poster, and although it pictured the drink and the Cornish pasty and said meal deal, there was a little asterisk (laughs) that said drinks extra. (laughs) I said, said well, I can't believe that. She said, everybody says that. Poor lady having to deal with all those customers. (laughs) But there is sometimes a presentation of the gospel that says, it's all going to be rosy, friends. Jesus is going to take all your burdens, you won't have any pain, you won't have any difficulty. And friends, it's just not true, actually. 
It's just not biblical. We're not being honest with people. Paul says that he refuses to be a peddler of God's word. He doesn't use anything that's underhanded. Suffering is actually part of discipleship. It's not something that unfortunately happens. It's something that is part of the deal, really. And Jesus prepares his disciples for that. Let me read to you some of the things he says. Chapter 15, verses 18 to 25. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to this world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. The world actually hates the church and the people of God. And that's becoming increasingly obvious and increasingly real for us in Britain, isn't it? It's growing that hatred and that hostility. We feel it. You feel it in your workplace. You see it in the media. We know it in our society. It's very real, becoming increasingly real. Chapter 16, verse 1. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Wow. That's going to be difficult for them. The synagogue was their whole way of life. Everything was built around the synagogue. But Jesus says, actually, you know, people will put you out of the synagogue. That's what happened to so many of the followers of Jesus. That's why the church, in a sense, came into being. Chapter 16. Verse 20 says, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Weeping and mourning will be part of our life and our experience. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So it is with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. Grief is part of living in this fallen, broken world. And we will experience it. And Jesus is real and honest about it. But he also says there is a joy that will come to you. But sometimes you will be having experiences of grief as well. But fortunately, verse uh, 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So he says, take heart. This is the truth to rest upon. Yes, there is trouble, but Jesus has overcome the world. And we will experience his peace, even in the midst of our difficulties and trials and tribulations. Uh, But we are not taken by surprise. We don't find it strange. Peter writes to people who are experiencing that kind of persecution And he says, don't think it's strange when you encounter this fiery ordeal. Don't be taken by surprise. Lots of us are taken by surprise, aren't we? We think, this shouldn't be happening to me. But Jesus made it pretty clear. I was once in a a teaching conference and the guy who was speaking asked us to make a list of what we thought were the requirements of discipleship. So we each had to make our own list and then kind of share 
what made a good disciple. And people, of course, said the obvious things. Well, you know, read your Bible every day. And people said, pray. And people said, be regular at church. All these kind of things that we consider good discipleship. So he made a whole list of things. And then he read out to us a list that had been made by believers in a particular country. I think it was Sri Lanka. Point number one, a willingness to suffer. Point number two, ready to die for their faith. <laughs> he put the two lists side by side. We thought, we're, we're missing something here. When the height of discipleship is, you know, reading your Bible is very important, but actually willingness to suffer. It's in a different league, isn't it? So they're the first three things that uh, I want to share with you. I want to pause if you've got any comments or questions. I'll try to repeat them back if you have. Just to give you that opportunity. Nothing too controversial there for you? Nothing, nothing too surprising or difficult to grasp? Servanthood, yes. And you talked about people not being willing to serve. Yeah. Um, in my experience, people don't want to be served. They like to As be well, yes, yes. Who serves and gives. Yes. So the, the paradox there that while some people don't want to serve, some of us, and, and often it's those who do serve others, we, we don't like to be served. <laughs> we feel very uncomfortable about that. That's why Peter also he felt very uncomfortable with the idea of Jesus washing his feet. He felt unworthy of that, really. And it takes a lot of grace, actually, to help people come near us in our time of need. Because maybe many of us have been brought up with the idea that we have to be self-sufficient, that we have to be independent. And yet those are not actually Christian values. Christian values is about being interdependent and about receiving help from other people and being willing to acknowledge, actually, I'm struggling here. Actually, I need you to pray for me. And often people in uh, ministry are the, find it most difficult of all because, in, in my experience, ministry can be a hiding place. When I'm talking about ministry, I'm talking about those people who are always praying for other people. Because if you're the one who's always praying for other people, you never actually have to admit to any need of your own. <laughs> and so sometimes it can be a hiding place for us, really, so that we never have to be vulnerable, we never have to be open, we never have to admit that actually I'm struggling today. I think church would be so much healthier if we could be, have that kind of openness and honesty, that we'd be much more resilient as well if we were able to let people in a bit. Yeah, so it is a two-way thing. We are interdependent, not independent. I don't know if in your notes you've got a point four. Have you got a point four? No. no. <laughs> Neither have I. It goes on to point five. <laughs> Don't know what happened to point four. Maybe it was sensitive on New Horizon. And you'll never know now what point four was. Point five, depend on the Holy Spirit. 
We've seen already this week as Heather has wonderfully led us through some of the passages on the Holy Spirit. She's come so much to John's Gospel. And uh, this masterclass on resilience is also contains, I think, the, the most comprehensive teaching on the Holy Spirit anywhere in Scripture. Because Jesus knew that we would not be able to do this task depending on our own resources. Only with the help of the Holy Spirit can we actually do it. Now both Heather and Dave have actually stolen a lot of my thunder here because they've talked about it so much. They talked about uh, uh, the Holy Spirit being the comforter and that illustration from the Bayeux Tapestry of, uh, of what comfort really is, to put strength in. But that term... Let me read just John 14 for you anyway, and because it's important. John 14, 15 to 18. If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor, comforter, however you want to translate that world, to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you, and will be in you. Personal pronouns use he, him, because the Holy Spirit is a person, not an it, not a power, not an impersonal, impersonal force, a person with whom we have a relationship. The third person of the Trinity is called, actually the word is the paraclete, isn't it? And the word paraclete, paraclesis, means to call alongside to help you. And that's what part of the work of the Holy Spirit. He comes alongside us, he draws alongside us to help us. And Jesus says, I'm going away, but the Holy Spirit, I'm going to give you another comforter to come to be with you, and another means of exactly the same kind. Not another that's different, but another which is exactly the same kind. Because in the mystery of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is in fact the Spirit of Christ. So when the Holy Spirit comes to us, it is Christ coming to us. And he comes and draws alongside us in our time of need. He is the paraclete. Every year for the last few years I've done a retreat in South Wales and uh, a group of friends have developed uh, as they've come uh, year by year to that retreat. And I was teaching them about this and talking about the paraclete being the one who comes alongside and they were saying it's like if you break down in your car and you're a member of the AA or the RAC or Green Flag or any other reputable company, I have to mention them all. <laughs> he comes alongside you to help you in your time of need. Little realising that on my journey back from South Wales to Yorkshire, I would break down on the side of the M42 when my exhaust dropped off, a scary experience. So I phoned for the AA and, uh, and then I texted my friends and I said, broken down on the M42, waiting for the paraclete to come. <laughs> become a standing joke <laughs> ever since then. But sure enough, he did come. That friendly AA man came and sorted me out and set me on my way again and I got home safely. How good it is to have someone who comes to you in your time of need comes and draws alongside you, comes to where you are, meets you in your pain and your brokenness and says, it's okay, I'm with you here. 
that presence of Jesus is communicated to us through the Holy Spirit, through the Comforter, through the Paraclete. You can say many other things about the Holy Spirit. He's the teacher. He's the one who takes the things of God and helps us to understand them. And not just to understand them, but to experience them. He interprets them to us. Paul says it's the Holy Spirit who sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts. He brings that wonderful assurance. He bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. He gives us that assurance, that wonderful glad assurance in our times of need. He is the witness. He helps us to give our testimony. He gives us the boldness that we need to stand up and say what we need to say when the opportunity comes. He's the helper working with us, as we thought about this morning, to convince the world of its need of God. He is the spirit of truth opening our eyes to help us to understand. And friends, this week God has been speaking so powerfully to us about the Holy Spirit and the place we give him in our hearts and in our lives. And and I'm wondering how you are responding to that and what you are doing with it. As Johnny said, I've been coming here about 10 years really, and I've heard various speakers saying different things in the main stage, all of them really good, and all of them kind of pointing to the needs of the church here in Northern Ireland. And this this has not only been no, no exception to that, I think this has been the most powerfully presented truth about the Holy Spirit in the context of the church in Northern Ireland, I think. And my question is, well, what are we actually going to do with that? What difference will it make to our lives? I was converted as a a teenager in a little Methodist chapel in the north of England where I grew up. I knew almost immediately that God was calling me into full-time ministry. And so I went off to uh, Bible College down in London. Uh, that was a big adventure for me as well, <laughs> leaving home. I was just 18 or 19 from a Methodist, little Methodist chapel. Uh, I had very little theology, but I knew Jesus in my heart. I knew this call of, of God. The first thing that happened to me, I was rooming with three or four other lads who were all Calvinists. I didn't know who Calvin was. <laughs> Never heard of him. I had on my shelf a book by a Methodist preacher called Leslie Weatherhead, who these guys thought was a heretic. (laughs) So they were suspicious, was I a believer or not? So they sat me down in a chair in the room and they went through the five points of Calvinism with me. (laughs) I got three out of five. (laughs) So they decided, okay, I was all right. That's how it began for me. It was a baptism. But anyway, I began to uh, learn and discover things. But I, I met some wonderful people in that college. But I met some people who clearly had something special in their lives that I did not have. And when I spoke to them and got to know them, the one thing that was common to those people was that they knew the Holy Spirit. And I did not know the Holy Spirit. I knew God the Father, I knew God the Son, but God the Holy Spirit was a complete stranger to me. I think I'd been in college for about two years, pondering uh, this 
this difference, this something that was lacking in my own life. I went back home during uh, one of the holidays and I went to the little Methodist chapel uh, where I was still worshipping at that time. And there was a young man, just a little bit older than me, actually one, a local preacher kind of came and he talked about the Holy Spirit. He, he was a painter and decorator. He wasn't a theologian, he wasn't a minister. He was a painter and decorator. But he spoke about the Holy Spirit and he used these verses in John and he said, when Jesus was glorified, the Spirit was given. And when Jesus is glorified in your life, the Spirit will be given. Amen. Boy, those words went into my heart like an arrow and I saw what I needed to do. I went back home, still living with my parents at that time, went up to my bedroom, got down on my knees by the side of the bed and I said, God, you said, when you are glorified, you will give the Spirit. I offer to you my life as much as I can, I surrender to you and I pray for the gift of your Holy Spirit. I didn't speak in tongues, nothing dramatic happened except... A wave of love <coughs> swept over me. And it came again and again and again until I knew that I was loved by God and that the Holy Spirit was with me. And I picked up my Bible and I remember I started reading the Psalms. And I thought, I've got a new Bible here. <laughs> I really did. Because it spoke to me like I'd never heard it speak to me before. And I, and I started seeing things that I'd never seen before. It was the Holy Spirit. I mean, that was 40 years ago. I'm not still living on that experience, by the way. Because Paul says we should be filled with the Holy Spirit every day and every moment of every day. And I can tell you, friends, this. I want to tell you this very sincerely, that I have only been able to do what I have done because of that experience of the Holy Spirit and because of that dependency upon the Holy Spirit day by day. Almost every day, I pray, God, will you fill me with your Holy Spirit today because I cannot do this unless you are with me. I cannot do it. I cannot live this Christian life unless you're with me. And I certainly can't do anything that has an impact on other people unless you are with me. And I want to urge you and I want to encourage you to take this so seriously that you get some time alone and, and, and you stay with God until you get through on this question, until you know that the Holy Spirit is shedding the love of God abroad in your heart. Don't let it be a concept in your head. The Holy Spirit wants to be the paraclete who is alongside you, is your closest friend. He will change and transform your life and your walk with God, because we're called to depend on the Holy Spirit. If it takes you an hour, if it takes you a day, if it takes you a week, if it takes you a month, be like Jacob and say, I will not let you go until you bless me. I think part of the weakness of Christians today is that we, w we want everything to come to us through other people. So we, we want people to lay hands on us and we want people to do this for us and so on. We seem to have lost the art of getting alone with God for ourselves and saying, God, I'm not going anywhere until you come to me. That's the greatest source of resilience that you have, the Holy Spirit. We have three relationships with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with us, the Holy Spirit is in us, and the Holy Spirit comes upon us. 
So the Holy Spirit is with you. He's with you every moment of the day. He's escorting you through life. He's the one who brought you to faith. He drew you with the arms of his love and grace. And the Holy Spirit wooed you to Jesus Christ. He is with you and he continues with you. And as we've heard this week, he comes to live in us. He's resonant within us. The life of Christ manifests within us. He bears witness to us and he interprets the truth to us. And then when we're called to serve God, he comes upon us and he anoints us for the particular task so that we can do the things that he's called us to do. In you, with you and upon you. Look for him. Look for him. The Bible says don't resist the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit because he's a person. But yield yourself to the Holy Spirit. Let him come and fill you. That's what being filled with the Holy Spirit means. And that's why it's a continual relationship with him. Surrendering ourselves to him once again. Depend on the Holy Spirit. Then the last one, number five or number six as it probably is. Learn to abide in Christ. John chapter 15, that wonderful passage about the vine and the branches that sums up how we are to live the Christian life. (coughs) By abiding in Christ and by living in the same way that Jesus lived in relationship to the Father. You can only understand John 15 actually by understanding what Jesus has said earlier in John chapter 14 verse 10. In John chapter 14 verse 10 Jesus says... Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He's talking about a wonderful union that he has with the Father. I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. And that's how... Uh, Jesus ministered. It is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And that, friends, is the essence of how we're to live the Christian life. It's not about trying harder. It's not about doing more. It's about abiding in Christ as the branch abides in the vine and the life of the vine is in the branch. That, says Jesus, is how you will bear fruit. In fact, you will bear much fruit. Let me read John a little bit from John 15 verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Remember this, he is the vine, you are only a branch. The life is in the vine, and if you are connected to the vine, you will share the life of the vine. If you are disconnected, you will not have that life within you. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a person remains in me, and I in them... They will bear much fruit. This is an organic, natural relationship. If I stay connected to him, and I remind myself that he is in me, then, without realising, I will begin to bear fruit. In fact, I will bear much fruit. That will be the fruit of the Spirit in my life. It will be the fruit of worship to God. It will be the fruit of a life of service and influence and impact, so there's my witness in the world. And it will all happen naturally and organically without my having to strive to make it happen. It happens because I'm just living my life in Him. I am in Him and He is in me. And then Jesus adds this little rider to it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Separated from me, 
You cannot do anything that will bring glory to God. It might bring glory to you, but it won't bring glory to God because it will be coming out of your own effort. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If there's any passage of scripture that has influenced my Christian life and service, it, it is the discovery of John 15. What Hudson Taylor called the exchange life. I come from the town where Hudson Taylor was born. Hudson Taylor was a great missionary to China. Founded what is now called the Overseas Missionary Fellowship. But his great discovery, because of his own weakness and failure, was that you cannot live this Christian life apart from Christ. There is only one person who can live it. It's Christ. And he offers to live that life in us and through us. But we have to come to an end of ourselves. And often that's God's agenda when we go through times of trouble. Sometimes God is actually weakening that sense of self in order that the life of Christ may be fully manifested in us. And that great exchange place. So Paul says, Galatians 2 verse 20, and how I struggle with Galatians 2 verse 20. For years and years I read Galatians 2 verse 20. I said, God, I don't understand what it means. What does it mean? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. As Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What does it mean, God? I didn't know what it meant. Couldn't make any sense of it. Until I realized my own inadequacy and my own weakness. And I came and I said, God, I cannot do this. I can't live this Christian life. When we get to that point, God says, good, that's what I've been waiting for. Now let me show you what I can do. Because I can live my life in you and through you. And it doesn't depend upon you. All you have to do is to learn to abide. There's a little book on the bookstore called A Fruitful Life, which I wrote just based on John 15. If you want to study that passage some more, I'd recommend that book to you. Because it really is worth getting hold of what Jesus is saying there, because that's what the Christian life depends upon. And that's what our resilience depends upon too. That we are anchored in him. I'm in him and he is in me. Let's just pause then if you've got any thoughts or comments now. Any questions, any responses? Anything you're not sure of? Yes. We like is we like to go to the garden centre and buy the ready-made plant, which is actually quite far along. Yes. And when I've done that, I have instant impact in my fairly you know, meagre garden. Um, and but my actual experiences, again and again, I guess because they've taken root in a different environment, they don't necessarily last out the weather. Yeah. So in the end, we bought a cold frame and we bought seeds, and there's ever so much more kind of. You know, seeming make way more patience, and you have to be really diligent. And, and but but something grown from seed, once it's planted up, because it's gone through the different phases, and also you can put it in the cold, and you, did, you know, it actually lasts longer. But we can't just quite get our heads around that. And so I think it's the same in the Christian life. I really appreciate your comment. When really we just want someone to pray some that into yes. us. Just pray that. Just pray for me, you know, and then I'll have that. But but and and God could do it that way. So the, the, can I just share for the tape? Yes. Yeah. So the point of the illustration is some people like to go to the garden centre and get ready-made plant really, put it in their garden and it's grown, that's it. <laughs> no hard work with that. 
but they don't always take very well because they're not grown in that soil anyway. But compare that to the joy of actually nurturing something from seed and seeing it grow and become rooted there and, and uh, develop there. And, and the thought is that in the Christian life we're often looking for shortcuts. Read the latest book, get the latest CDs, go to this conference, that conference, get this person to pray for me, that person to pray for me. But actually I'm not doing anything inside. I'm not growing myself. It's all external to me. That's what seems to be lacking. And then when resilience comes, you see, because there's nothing inside, <laughs> you're very vulnerable. Uh, we took our holiday this year in Northumberland. Uh, we love to go to Northumberland. We went to Holy Island. And uh, near St. Mary's uh, Church there, as we walked through in the graveyard, there's a big, ch big tree, and it's fallen over completely. And uh, the roots were exposed. And when we walked past and looked at it, the roots... Were, were just dry wood. The tree had died of dehydration. It had no water. And therefore the roots were not strong enough to hold the tree and it collapsed. And it spoke to me about, you know, the inner life being the source of the strength for the outer life. If you neglect your roots, if spiritually you're dehydrated, when the winds blow especially if you're carrying a big load, you're a big tree as it were, but your roots are weak, what will happen? You will topple over. You will topple over. That's why the inner life, I've been emphasizing the inner life, I'm a teacher about the inner life, because the inner life determines how far you can go in the outer life. Henry Nouwen said, the further the outward, outer journey takes you, the deeper the inner journey must be. Let's be deeply rooted in Christ. That's where resilience comes from. I am deeply rooted. But that's an investment of time. And no shortcuts to it, really. No shortcuts to it. Thank you, Mary. Any other questions? Yes, right at the top. Oh, yes, good. I have had to work with my mind. Yes. 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 Yeah. So our friend is talking about the the importance, the helpfulness of keeping a journal, of writing down your thoughts, of processing. I find the same. If I'm really troubled, that's when I journal. Because once I write my thoughts down, I see how ridiculous they are. When they're in here, they seem quite plausible. Write it down on paper. You think that is nonsense. It objectifies things for you. But also you, it can be a record for you. When God has spoken something to you, you know it's God. Make a record of it, write it down. And then read back over it and go over it. That's when actually you can strengthen your mind. It's a way of renewing your mind. Journaling is a great exercise, a part of abiding in Christ. Tony, just explain. You know when you were saying that the Holy Spirit... Is in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. Yes. And then he is alongside with us. And then he comes upon us. Upon us, yeah. Can you explain that a bit more? Right, okay. So, first of all, the Holy Spirit is with us because the Holy Spirit is active in our lives before ever we know him. He is the one who draws us to Christ. So, if you like, that is the external work of the Holy Spirit that is, is still going on today because the Holy Spirit is everywhere in the world. So, the Holy Spirit is, is with us. 
But Jesus said, and that in a sense was the Old Testament experience of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus said to his disciples, oh, the Holy Spirit's with you, but you know what? He's going to be in you. And that is the miracle of Pentecost and the miracle of the new birth, that at the new birth, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. So every one of us has the Holy Spirit, and our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The danger there, though, is, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I think in his commentary on Romans chapter 8, some people say, well, I've got the Holy Spirit, and his comment is, well, got it, well, where is it then? (laughs) Because you have to nurture the life of the Spirit within you. You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit, as I've been saying this morning. And, and, and you have to become familiar with the Holy Spirit, however that happens. So that's the Holy Spirit in you. But then the other dimension is that sometimes the Holy Spirit comes upon you for a particular moment and to do a particular thing. We call that the anointing of the Holy Spirit that enables us to do something. And that's a wonderful, and you'll read in the Acts of the Apostles how the Holy Spirit keeps coming upon them. Not because they didn't have the Holy Spirit, but because this was a particular moment when they needed that anointing to do a particular task or a particular job. And it's a wonderful experience to know the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He's anointed me for a particular task. So is that okay? That's the three dimensions of the Holy Spirit. So live in, in the awareness of that. We better call a halt there, I think.